0: So how many of you have had this moment in your life? You made a decision, and then whether it be immediately or right after, these words ran through your head. What was I thinking? Anyone ever been there? I know I have. Maybe it was what was I thinking, or you made a decision, and shortly after you're like, how in the world did I get here? You know, was I even awake when I made this decision? And for some of you... uh, you make these decisions more often than others when it comes to making mistakes. You've been there before? We're going to look at a guy this morning who made some mistakes. But before that, I, I want to talk about another guy uh, who's still alive, actually. Um, in the early 90s, this man's name was Ron Wayne. His picture's going to come up on the screen. He had a document that he, he looked at and he's like, you know, this might be kind of valuable. Because it had a few signatures on it. One of the signatures was a guy by the name of Steve Jobs. You heard of him before? right? Founder of Apple. So Steve Jobs had signed this. It was the original contract that started the company Apple in 1976. So Ron Wayne had this document. He's like, you know what? I think I can sell this and make some money. So he sold it for a whopping $500. Then in 2011, it went up for auction again. And he wasn't so excited when he saw that it sold for $1.6 million for that same piece of paper. He made a mistake, right? But for Ron Wayne, that wasn't the biggest mistake. You see, the reason why he had that document in the first place, because his, it was because his signature was on the document. He was a co-founder of Apple with Steve Jobs back in 1976. But you're thinking, well, I haven't heard of his name before. And the reason you haven't is because 12 days after fi- founding Apple with Steve Jobs, he started to get cold feet. And he didn't. St- he was looking at it, he's like, I don't think this is going to go anywhere. I don't think there's much value in this thing. I'm getting nervous. I've put some money into this. So Steve, will you buy my 10% of the company back from me? And so Steve Jobs reluctantly said, okay, if you don't believe in me, fine. I'll give you $800. And so Ron Wayne was excited. He said, okay, $800 and made a little money. But being alive today, Ron Wayne, as he looks at his, um, you know, what that 10% would be worth, it's around $98 billion. And if he would have just held on to his stocks, he would be the second richest man on earth. Mistakes. You ever had moments like that? I think for some of us in this room, we have a mistake. Maybe not that yet. Yeah. Maybe not like that. Yeah. Yeah. But for some of us in this room, we've made mistakes that we live with every day, do we not? For some of us, they consume us. We think about it all the time. For some of us, we've made mistakes that not only hurt ourselves, but hurt other people and it affects other people today. How do we live with that? Maybe you're in this room and you're pretty young, you're like, look, I'm 13 years old, I haven't made that many mistakes. Well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you're probably going to make some mistakes. How do you avoid that? I mean, how many of us in this room have thought, I wish I could just go back. I wish I could just go back and tell myself, shake myself and say, what were you doing? So today we're going to look at a guy who made a pretty serious mistake. And we're going to learn from him, what what can we do to avoid mistakes, but also what can we do after we've made these mistakes? How do we live with them? So if you have a Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 25. We're in Genesis chapter 25. We're going to start in verse 21 this morning. Um, But before we do that, I want to set a little context. If you've been coming for a while, you've heard uh, the sermons have been about this family in Genesis, The family of Abraham. And they're no ordinary family, are there? This is a family that God has specifically touched. And he told Abraham, hey, I am going to do something amazing in your family, in your life. And he even promised Abraham this thing. It was called the Abrahamic what? Covenant. And so God covenanted with with Abraham and said, look, I'm going to bless every family in the earth through your family. Isn't that crazy? I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of, it for, at the time, you're like, well, that wasn't that big of a deal. But if you really think about what that was saying is, hey, your little family, everyone on the planet for all time will be impacted by this. It's going to be through you. Something amazing is going to happen. I'm going to grow your descendants. I'm going to give you land. Abraham, it's going to be incredible. And so Abraham had Isaac. You've talked about that story. And now we're going to look at Isaac, who had two sons. And we're going to pick up God's working through this family this morning. So if you're with me, it's going to come up on the screen. Verse, we're going to start in verse 21. And it says this, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? Let's stop there. Now, I, I'm not pregnant, and I've never been pregnant. And I don't plan on being pregnant. But apparently, something was going on where you had two babies, and they were going crazy inside her. And so it, it was enough that she had to go before the Lord and say, God, what, what is going on? And so she goes to the Lord in verse 23, and the Lord answers her. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Verse 24, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. What an attractive child. (laughs) So they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter and a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So let's talk about these boys. Esau. Like we said, I don't know if everyone, that's your dream of when you have a baby, how it's going to look, but as a man, he's got it going on. For the older generation, he's more of the John Wayne, Michael Landon type that Esau was. Um, For the younger generation, maybe a Dwayne the Rock Johnson, if you know who I'm talking about. Um, He was the stud of studs, and he grew up to be that kind of man, burly, out-hunting kind of guy. My my dad was an all-star athlete growing up. Okay, he was captain of the basketball team, quarterback on the football team, all through high school, college. You know, you go in the garage; there's all these trophies, and what you think would be any man's dream was he had six sons, all of which are over six feet tall. There's some potential, right? You know my dad, and when he had these boys, like, all right, we're gonna have a football team, or you know, whatever. All six boys, we have the hand-eye coordination of about a brick. <laughs> I do not know what happened. I mean, if, you, if one of the requirements for your pastor here was a basketball sports guy, Jared would have failed immediately. <laughs> do not play sports with my brother or any of us. We are just absolutely terrible, right? Um, but Esau, he was the man's man that every day, that his dad was just like, yes, you know, you, you are, you like hunting, you like stuff. I mean, I, I, could you just imagine the trips they went on? those hunting trips that Isaac would take Esau. Imagine those conversations that Isaac would have had. You know, imagine telling Esau, Esau, like, you're the firstborn. You you, you don't understand, like, our family, there's something special, Esau. Like, I wouldn't even have been born. It was a miracle. My mom was so, she was in her 90s, and yet God made a miracle so I could be born. And God promised your grandfather, Abraham, that something was going to happen, Esau. And and I'll never forget that morning when when your grandpa took me out and he said, we're going to go sacrifice something. And he started building this altar, Esau. And I looked at him like, hey, where's the bull? Where's the goat? And your grandpa said to me, he said, no, 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 you you are the one. Our God Yahweh has called you. And I remember I was scared, like I just started shaking Esau. But then this God brought a bull and he stopped your grandfather. In that moment, you see, Esau, you're special. Esau, you're part of the line. Esau, something's gonna happen with our family and you're the guy God has covenanted with us. Imagine this bond of father and son. But there's another son. This son's more like my dad's six sons. In the house, crocheting with mom kind of guy. That's the guy. I think Jared has crocheted before. You should talk to him about it don't tell him I said that. (laughs) And so our text says that Jacob's mom loved him. He was the kind of intellectual type. And imagine what she would say is she'd be like, you know, Jacob, your big brother, jarhead, you know, football type, he's not going to go places, but you're smart. You should be the guy. You know, Jacob, there was this prophecy before you were born and it said, the older will serve the younger. I think that means you're gonna be in charge. Jacob, you gotta get it. And we see her later in another text, so we won't spoil it, but she connives her son into getting that, and we see part of it today. So you see the tension in this family? You see kind of what, what it would have been like between these two brothers, and that leads us to kind of the pinnacle of our text this morning. You still with me? So let's read on in Genesis. Let's pick it up in verse 29. Okay, it's already up there. Great. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of the red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. For what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. What is going on here? First off, I lost my place in my notes. I must have gotten mixed up. So that's what I meant with what's going on here. One moment, we're going to get there. This is why you put numbers on your notes. Okay, we're good, we're there. All right. So birthright. What is that? You see, this was a patriarchal society, and and what that meant is that you have this family, this clan, is that as they would grow, the promise was to this patriarchal clan, Abraham, it wasn't who was the smartest, who was the best looking would get to be the next leader, it was the firstborn. I know you love celebrity pop culture and gossip. So Meghan Markle and Prince Harry have left the monarchy in England. Did you know that? That's been the big thing on the news. And the reason why it's such a big deal is you don't do that. Because they were born into the family. They have, a, they have, they have like this obligation to the throne. They said, no, we don't want it. And so the birthright was rightfully Esau's. And so Jacob's just saying, give me your birthright. I want all the promises that God has promised our family, I want it to come through me. I want to be the guy. I don't want you to be the guy. But what a question to ask someone. For food? I mean, let's think about this. It it kind of makes sense if Esau really was starving to death, but is that what's really going on? Because if you think about it, is Jacob that horrible of a brother that if Esau was like, nope. Not going to sell you my birthright. Jacob was like, all right, start to death. I'm going to watch you die. Is that what was really? I mean, it could have been. But then if you think about it, Esau was a stud, Jacob was, you know, he sips tea with his mom. You think Esau, even though he's tired, could have been like, oh, you're not going to feed me? He could have popped him, right, and grabbed some stew. So commentators believe, and I I believe that, I think this is more a figure of speech. I think this is more of, you know, after church, when you take your kids or your grandkids, you get them in the car and you're thinking about where to eat, what do they say? I'm starving to death, right? And I think for some of you, shame on you, but you're adults and you use that phrase all the time. You're like, you know, I got up, I had three eggs and pancakes, three donuts at church and coffee, but I'm starving to death. You know, know, this preacher's going too long. You know, we gotta get out of here, right? And that, that, I think, is where Esau was. He was tired. He was definitely hungry. But he, it's a figure of speech. But I think what this is showing us is that Jacob understood something about Esau. He understood Esau's not really concerned with the family line. Esau's not really concerned about the promises of God. Esau, when it comes to convenience, when it comes to his desires— Or when it comes to the things of God, his desires always win. And that leads us to our first point this morning. If you're taking notes, it says this, that mistakes follow when we fail to believe and value the promises of God. That's where Esau was. Another text in the New Testament sheds light on this. It's gonna come up on the screen. In Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about Esau. Read with me, it says this, see to it, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it may become defiled. Verse 16, here it is. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Mistakes often fall when we fail to value and believe the promises of God. My grandmother growing up, um, I, for two things, I loved going to my grandmother's house, and I hated going to my grandmother's house. The first reason was this. She had cats. I'm a cat guy. I know for some of you, you're going to judge me now, and you don't want to listen. But cats, I believe, are God's creatures, and dogs, I don't. That's the word of the Lord this morning. No. (laughs) I, I mean... If you go Philippians, Paul the apostle, a man ordained by God, said, watch out for the dogs, those (laughs) evildoers. And then the Old Testament compares Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah, which is a very large cat, (laughs) right? You don't call Jesus the great dog. You call him the great cat, the lion. Anyway, that's a side note. But so I loved my grandmother's house because she had a couple cats and I'd go find But I hated my grandmother's house because it reeked of cigarette smoke. I mean, it was, we would drive up, all 10 of us would get out of the big van, and you would step on the grass, and it was a carcinogen. I mean, the house just reeked. You'd go in there, and I vividly remember just (coughs) all the time, you'd open the fridge, and you'd see just a ton of cigarettes, and and it's really sad. I don't know why they refrigerate cigarettes, but anyway, she did, and it was so sad because I remember my parents talking to her. I remember doctors telling her, like, hey, this is going to kill you. You can't keep doing this you got to stop. It's going to give you lung cancer. Like, you can't smoke this much. But for my grandmother, even with all the warnings, even with all the people telling her, what she valued most was that puff. What she valued most is that instant gratification. And rather than looking at the long term, and rather than looking at the long term of life and what matters, she's like, no, I can't give this up. And I think Esau... Was a man that he lived for the moment. And I think so many of us are like that, are we not? That we're people who, yeah, we might say, I believe in God, I believe in Scripture, I believe in the promises of God, I believe that the Bible says that God's way is better than mine, and that the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one, and that I'm fallen, and I need His grace, I need His love, I need to change. But at the same time, when it comes to my immediate desires, that's what wins. And that's what I'm about. I'm sure Esau, if you asked him, Esau, do you believe in God? Yahweh?" He would have said, well, yeah, right? That's, that's our family. I believe that. I'm sure if you would ask Esau, like, hey, do you believe God's going to do something? Yeah. But when push came to shove and when his belly and his desires are right in front of him, what wins? What's valuable? And I think for many of us, we believe, but we're driven and our choices are dictated by our desires. You know what I'm saying, and it's hard, isn't it? It's hard because when you're faced in that moment, right? For some of you, that maybe it's with your spouse, maybe it's with your parents or your kids or your boss or whatever. In that moment, when they're just being a punk, and you know that the Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. And you know, the Bible says that we're to love our enemy and do good to them, but in that moment when they're saying things that are hurtful, instead of being like, okay, how can I hold it in, how can I pray, and how can I love them, what do we do? We talk back. Don't talk to me like, you know, and we say stuff back, we get revenge, because why? Because our desires come in, and what's easiest is to just let it out, instead of hold back and trust the Lord that he will change their heart. You see how that works? Maybe for some of you, it's that God's told you, hey, I hate a lying tongue. I want you to be true. I want your word to represent me as the true God who never lies and you as a representation of me. I want everything you say to be honest. But when push comes to shove and it's at work or it's about your taxes or it's about finances, it's like, it's a lot easier to lie. It's a lot easier to give into that temptation than stand for righteousness. Maybe it's, you know, God says, what are his promises? What are his promises? What does he say? He says, I care for the sparrows and I can feed them. The lilies of the field I care for. How much more will I care and for you and provide for you? I've promised that I'm a God who cares and in my house are many mansions and I'm never going to leave you. But when our finances come into play, it's so hard not to fudge the numbers on things. Why? Because ultimately what it is, is when it comes to my desire and my immediate needs versus the promises of God or the things that really matter, my desires win. Have you been there? That's where Esau was. And that's, I think, what Jacob knew. Now, Jacob wasn't innocent. Jacob was a liar. He wasn't trusting the promises of God, but I think he believed in him a little bit more than Esau did. Are you here this morning, And the trajectory of your decisions in life are more about what's right in front of me, right here, right now, what I want, or is it more about, God, it's what you want. God, I want to trust in you. I mean, what if Esau in that moment was able to look at the situation? He's like, yes, I'm hungry, I'm tired. Yes, I want food, but was able to say, but the promises of God are that he's going to do something through the line. And I'm with the guy that's up. And I want to hold on to that. I don't want that to be what's valuable. So you know what, Jacob? I'm just going to choose to hit you and take the stew versus trade this. Right? What if he would have done that? But instead, he doesn't care. And we read in Hebrews that though he, he, he wept for this, though he sought it with tears, could not get it back. Our first point is mistakes follow when we fail to value and believe in the promises of God. Well, what's our second? Let's read on in the story. Are you still with me? Genesis 25, verse 34. It's that last verse. It says this, Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. But get this, Thus Esau despised his birthright. The funny thing is when I read that, You would think the text would say this, wouldn't you think it says, and he ate and drank and left, thus Jacob deceived Esau, and he didn't get his birthright. Wouldn't you think so? Or that, you know, Esau was really tired and out of his fatigue, he took it, not thinking clearly because he was hangry, and he just couldn't handle it. But instead it says, no, 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 Esau is responsible, and that's what Hebrew says. Esau was an unholy or a godless man. Didn't that seem kind of weird? Because I read this and Jacob seems like the bad guy. Your brother's hungry and come back from the field and you're like, well, give me your birthright. I'm not feeding you. This is our second point this morning is that mistakes hold us responsible no matter what the circumstance. How many of us are people, especially my generation, we just want to shift blame all the time, don't we? Well, you don't know my background, you don't know my parents, my dad walked out on me, my mom mistreated me, that's why I am the way that I am. You don't know how you set us up for us financially, you baby boomers, you gotta give us all your money because I'm a millennial and I deserve it, right? You know what it's like being me. You don't know because of this government, yeah, I, I just can't flourish in this, it's their fault. Or, well, it's global warming or climate change, it's that, that's the problem, that's why I am the way that I am, right? We're a generation that we love to cast blame this has been going on since Adam and Eve in the garden. We don't want to take responsibility. I had my good buddy in seminary. He, uh, I, I didn't know at the time, but he was messing around with a lot of different girls. And he got hired at a church as the youth pastor. And uh, pretty soon into that, it came to my attention that this was going on. And so I went to him and I was like, hey, you this isn't okay. You, you got to tell your elders, you got to tell your church or your deacons. Something's going to, and to his credit, he did. But I'll never remember that. I'll forget that conversation because I was talking to him and I was like, you, What have you done? And he's like, You don't understand. Those girls tempted me. <laughs> Especially my fiance. She, you know, that girl, she threatened me. She said, If you love me, you'll do this. She said, it, It's her fault. And I looked at him, I was like, What? And so what he did is he went back to his elder board and the pastor and said, look, you know, I did all this with all these different girls, but they tempted me. And then the elder board was like, oh, they tempted you? You're good. Stay on staff. We had no idea. Okay, it's their fault. Is that what they said? No. It's, It's his fault. Yeah, the girls have their own fault, but it's his fault. He is responsible for his actions. And the Bible holds us responsible. It says in Romans that so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And in Romans 1 says, we are without excuse. But that's hard. Because some of us actually have had brutal lives and horrible things happen to us. And I'm not saying, you know, I believe God is gracious. God is caring and he sees all things. Praise him for that. So I think he does Find compassion towards us with our circumstances, but ultimately we're still responsible. You know, a lot of the men and women in prison had horrible family lives, but they're still responsible for their actions. So are we. And so was Esau. What do we do with that? Because there's a lot of us in this room that we've made mistakes. And a lot of us just want to, maybe you've been going a long time and it's just easier to just push it on the road. Well, I just chalked that up to bad parenting or oh, my last marriage. You have no idea, right? Or you don't know what that pastor did to me. I mean, imagine if Ron Wayne would go to Apple right now and say, hey guys, look, you, Steve Jobs, bless his heart, rest in peace. But he was kind of a nut. You know, he was hard to work with. I mean, what do you think? I, you would have probably quit too think Apple's going to be like, you're right. We're going to write you a check for 98 billion. (laughs) What are you going to say? It's your fault. You didn't see the value in Apple. You didn't see it. You didn't care. You didn't believe in the vision. You didn't believe in it. And now you've lost it. Jesus said, what does it profit a whole man? For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but loses his soul? Don't be the person that lives your life for what is right in front of you. And you go day after day giving into your desires, and that's what dictates everything in your life, and you miss eternity. Guess what? Eternity with Christ is worth a lot more than $97 billion. That's what matters. That is what counts. And so many of us, if you're like me, you live for the moment. As I was preparing this this week, I just, it's hard because I look at my own life and I see so many areas where it's like, no, my decisions are based off of just what I want, how I want it, when I want it, right? How I talk to people, how I treat people is often based on how I'm feeling, not what God has called me to do, not the promises of God. So what do we do? Where's the hope? This has been a downer of a message. So where's the hope? If you've made mistakes, is there hope? Is there hope for Esau? Is there hope for us? Well, I want to read a text in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to kind of slowly start bringing this to a close here, but Philippians 3, and I think this verse is our hope this morning, or these verses. 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Verse 19, here's the one. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. I think you could say that about Esau. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. People whose minds are set on this earth. What drives their life? Their desires, their belly. What's going to satisfy me? That's what Esau was about, and that's what I think so many of us fall into. But here's the hope: verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul is saying, he's like, look, don't live for right what's in front of you. Don't live off of just what you can see. Live for what is unseen, which is Christ. It's not about the finances that are in front of you. It's not about whether you're going to go hungry right now or not. It's not about what you're going through relationally. It's about him. What's Paul saying? He's like, look up. Look up. Don't just see your eyes fixed on. what, what you know, Esau, you just look at him and say, stew, bread, right? He's like, no, no, Esau, look up. Look at the line. Look at the promise. Look at the covenant. Look at what God's going to do. And I think God is calling us this morning, look up. If you're here, and you're living in your mistakes, or you've been tempted with different things, or you have mistakes, it's time to look at what really matters. Hebrews 12 that talks about Esau, you know who they're comparing Esau to, the person they talk about right before Esau? It's Jesus. And what it talks about is Jesus in the midst of temptation. What did he do? Said, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Imagine if Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's sweating blood and he's like, God, I don't want to go. And God says, Jesus, I need you to go. What if he's like, well, what matters to me is right now, and going to a cross does not sound very good. I'm not going to save those people at Bethany Church. I'm not going to save the thousands and millions of people that the cross can do. I just want to live and I don't want to go. That's probably what Esau would have done. That's probably what I would have done. But he didn't. He didn't. He looked and said, no, I'm looking at what matters. I'm looking at the big picture. I'm looking at the promises of God. I am not going. He didn't do that when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, right? What did Satan say? Jesus, you can have it all now. Jesus, you hungry? Here's some bread. Jesus, you want the glory of man? Throw yourself off of this and show them that you're God. You could have it now. You don't have to go to the cross. And she says, No. I'm standing for what's right. I'm going the extra mile. I'm not stopping because this is what matters, not my immediate desires to gratify them. That's not what I'm about. That's what we have, and that's what we need to look to when we make our decisions. So we need to be people who look to the cross of Christ. Before it's too late, my grandma died of lung cancer. It was too late. She ignored the warnings. Wonderful woman, but she ignored and didn't care about what really mattered. Let's not be those people. Let's be people that look to Christ, our victor, the one who has paved the way. So a couple application points before we close, we go eat. first application is, do you value the promises of God? Do you know the promises of God? Do you read your Bible so you can hold it close and know, wait, this is the truth that dictates and guides my life. Like the psalmist David could say, your word is a light unto my path. Your word, I love it. I adore it. I want to meditate on it. Is that us? Are you holding on to the word of God? Because if you're not, every decision you make will just be the wisdom you get from this world and based on your own desires and cravings. May you look to the promises of God and may you value it. Our second application is this. Are you still trying to not take responsibility for your mistakes? I'm guilty of this. One thing my wife always tells me is what I try to do is I try to, if if I, I try to say, well, it's not my fault because you did this first. It's not my fault because you said that and that's why I said this, but I wouldn't have said that if you didn't say that. Are you still not taking responsibility? The Bible, what's the gospel? Own your sin. Take responsibility. Repent and look to Christ. There's hope. Just because you take responsibility, it doesn't mean God's gonna look at you and say you're going to hell. It, It means that, okay, you've taken responsibility. Lay it on my cross. Put your faith in me and I'll save you. Third is this. Maybe with your mistakes, you need to accept forgiveness. Esau didn't get struck dead after that. In fact, God cared for Esau and he became a nation. You have hope after your mistakes because of the cross. Because Jesus, he didn't make any mistakes. He went the extra mile for you. There's hope. Lastly, maybe you're here and you're like, well, I know I'm forgiven of my mistakes, I know there's hope, but I still live with it every day. The consequences are still here. That may be true. Esau lived with the consequences, but guess what? We have a God who can work all things together for good for those who love Christ. He's bigger than our mistakes. If he could take the greatest evil the world has ever seen at the cross and make that the greatest victory, he can take your flaws and your mistakes and make something beautiful out of it. That's why we we rejoice in trials because God is present and sovereign. May we not be like Esau, but may we be people who look to the cross of Christ. Let's pray.